Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning, all of you who've braved the frozen tundra. And probably more challenging than the frozen tundra is the road construction that will last until the Lord returns, because that's how road construction goes in our wonderful state. Uh, it's good to see you this morning, church family. Uh, last week, we began uh, walking through Psalm 22. And if you'll remember back with me, Psalm 22 starts, uh, starts strong right off the bat. Uh, David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the psalm proceeds as, as it moves from there to, to describe a, a reality that is, uh, that is readily acknowledged by God in His Word. Now, it's not as readily acknowledged by those of us who experience it, which the reality is simply this, that for those who have been saved by grace for, through faith, for those who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, for those of us who make up what would be called the people of God, our experience as humans who, who have been saved by grace through faith, living in a world of, of darkness, of brokenness, of weakness, of pain, of hardship where suffering is present, there is a real reality that even as followers of Christ, because we live in this world, there will be times, there will be seasons where whatever combination of those things, whether it be spiritual warfare, darkness, whether it be the pain of, of loss and grief and death, whether it be persecution and, and, and loneliness and isolation because of one's faith, whether it be simply the own weakness of our flesh as we try to stand against temptation, there are seasons of life where it just seems that God is distant, where it just sounds as if God is silent, where it feels that at best God is unaware and at worst He's actually disinterested in what is taking place, what I am experiencing as a human being. Now, Scripture's not blind to that fact, hence why we have Psalms like Psalm 22, where David, the man after God's own heart, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we walked through the Psalm last week, uh, we, we walked through a good chunk of it, but we had to stop short of, of finishing it out. And so that's where we come back to today. And, and I'll confess to you that it was very tempting this week when looking at this psalm and seeing what was left to be covered. It was tempting to go, wow, that just seems like such an obvious thing. Maybe we need to move somewhere else. And I tell you that because that's the danger as you and I are trying to, how do we respond when it seems God is far? There's three aspects this psalm reveals. Last week we only saw two, and it's the third one that's probably the most easy for each one of us in our own life to overlook and neglect, which is why we've got to come back and look at it again today. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me back to Psalm 22. Back to Psalm 22, and as, as, as I've already stated, and, and we'll remember, it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. David describes this experience of, of God, I'm crying out, but, but it seems as if you've forsaken me, you've abandoned me, you're not near. I, I keep crying out and I'm not hearing an answer. I am groaning, screaming, but by, th there's no rest, there's no silence for me. He describes being like a worm, reproached by men, despised by people who are taunting him, being surrounded by those who seek to kill him like bulls set to charge, lions set to devour. He speaks of his bones being dislocated, his strength being dried up and poured out, his mouth being so, so dry that his jaws are clenched shut and he cannot speak, his hands and feet pierced, all in the sight of people who are openly gambling over his clothes. Now, we don't know exactly, if you'll remember, we don't know exactly what events in David's life inspired, inspired this psalm. We don't know exactly. We do know that it's so personal, something happened in David where David is writing and he is writing an experience where it is like this. But you'll also remember as we walked through the psalm last week, though David experienced something like this, Jesus experienced this. As Jesus' hands and feet were pierced with nails, severing the nerve endings on the cross, as that cross was raised and dropped into the hole where Jesus' bones, specifically His shoulders, would be dislocated. Or on that cross, having not eaten or had anything to drink, he would be able to count his bones. Or on that cross, he was so thirsty, he asked for something to drink. Where his strength was poured out as his blood was quite literally bleeding out in the sight of all who would look and at his feet, those who gambled over his clothing. David experienced something like this. Jesus experienced this highlighted by the fact that on the cross we know our Savior said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As one put it, never was a man so afflicted as our Savior in body and soul from friends and foes by heaven and hell in life and death. He was the foremost in the ranks of the afflicted. And it's in the midst of this affliction that the psalmist cries out and says, Lord, be near to me, Lord, save me. And then comes this moment. Look with me, verse 21. He says, you answer me. Now, if you take our different translations, you'll see our translations all translate the end of that verse a little differently because it's a really confusing construction in the original Hebrew. What it is essentially is after this statement of, Lord, save me from the mouth of lions, save me from the horns of the oxen, all of a sudden there is this cry, this separation that marks a change. The psalmist has been responding to God's seeming distance by crying out, even though it's hard. He has responded by trusting God, even though he is confused. And all of a sudden he cries out and said, Lord, you have answered me. Your answer has come. Now, the interesting thing is, church family, he doesn't tell us how God answered him. We don't know how God answered David, but we do know how God answered Jesus and therefore 
us, and it's vital we understand this. How does God answer our pain and affliction in Christ? Understand, church family, it's in Christ's suffering where our sin is paid for. The thing that can actually separate us from God, where we might experience being far from God and separate it from His presence, it's in Christ on the cross, not just beaten and bruised and tattered and taunted by man, but drinking up every last drop of the wrath of God for our sin. It's on the cross that our sin was paid, which means on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, God's answer. Jesus didn't just die. He died. He paid the price and he rose again to give life to those who would cry out. It means in Jesus we have what Hebrews says is a great high priest who is able to sympathize, to suffer with our weaknesses. Because in every way he has been tempted and tried as each one of us. And so in light of this, we can draw near with boldness and confidence to find grace and mercy in time of need. Hebrews 4, understand church family, on the cross in Jesus' suffering, our sin, what separates us from God, it's dealt with, but not only that, Jesus, as the one who is fully God and fully man, he knows what it's like to fill seasons and moments of life where God seems distant. It means he knows what it's like to be lonely and isolated, to see his community abandon him to feel discouraged, to be tempted, to be tested. He knows what it's like to weep in the pain of grief, both with those who are sorrowful and at the death of people he loves. Lazarus, Jesus, wept. Jesus understands when you and I go, how do I respond to moments where God seems distant? Understand that our Savior knows exactly what our experience is like because he is God's answer to the ultimate cry of humanity which is doomed and enslaved and held captive by sin to death. Jesus changes everything. He says, he answered me. He answered me. Listen to this church family. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to, to them, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of how, how bad we were suffering. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, in Christ, we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He's not hiding from it. He says, look, you come to faith in Christ by grace through faith. You share things with Jesus. You share suffering. He said, I don't want you to be unaware, uh, church in Corinth, how bad the suffering was. He said, Paul says, me and my companions, we got to a point of such great pain that we despaired even of life itself. We were at the point where we either thought we were going to die or we wished we would die. He says, don't want you to be confused, church family in Corinth. We know what it is like to suffer in the deepest, most hardest, most painful ways. But just as we share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, because we're in Jesus, one, you might have already caught it, when we share in Christ's sufferings, there is a fellowship, not a loneliness. And it's not just a fellowship with each other, though that is true. It's a fellowship with Jesus in the midst of His suffering. But just as we share in this, he says, we also share abundantly in the comfort of Christ. 
that there is a comfort of Jesus which met Paul and his companions at their lowest moment, which led them to, in response, cry out, trust, and in that trust, it's, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, that they would depend not on themselves but on God, for their hope is certain. Jesus changes everything. Not only that, take a passage like Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 will make a statement that we are no longer under the law of death, but we are in the Spirit that we may we may live. It says in, in Romans 8, for we are being, those in Christ are being led by the Spirit of God. We are now sons of God. We, we haven't given a spirit of slavery to, to fall back into fear, but a, a spirit of adoption by which we can cry out to God. We can cry out to God as Father, as Abba, Papa. That the holy, holy, holy God of this universe before whom no angel can see the salvation we have in Christ because Jesus' suffering is God's answer, we can approach God as Papa, Abba, Father, as a son, as a daughter. And though we will suffer with Him, Romans 8 tells us that if we, because we are co-heirs with Christ, that as we suffer with Him, so there will be a glory that is coming. It transforms everything. Paul says in light of Jesus being the answer, that the present sufferings we go through, they are incomparable. They will pale. They will not even come to mind when we see the glory that has come that is going to be revealed when the Lord returns, when we're called home. He says we groan even now in, in ourselves. We, we wait for our full adoption for the fullness of our salvation, that is the, the resurrection of our bodies for the new heaven and new earth. And we have this hope, not because we see it in front of us, because it's guaranteed and certain to come. It says that as Jesus changes everything, this life's not the end. My body's weaknesses are not the end. Says that as we walk through this life and we encounter things that we don't even know how to pray for, it says in this way the Holy Spirit helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself, He intercedes with groanings that are so deep they're too deep to be described with words. And he prays the perfect will of God for us. You see, Jesus being the answer means that at our lowest moments, when we don't even know how to cry out and verbalize our prayer to God, the Holy Spirit of God who is living inside of us is praying with such perfect passion, the will of God, words can't even be described. It says that Jesus being the answer in the midst of our pain, sorrow, and, and suffering says that God will take all things in the life of his son or daughter, all things, and He will work all of them for His good. See, here's the reality. In Christ, nothing can stop God's good and perfect will in your life because God, nothing will stop God from conforming us into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 28. Not only that, but then it goes further in Romans 8. It says, God is for us. Who will be against us? No one can stand against God's will and purpose in our lives. It says that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. It says there's no separation. In fact, in Christ at all times, whether we feel it or not, whether it's our best day or our lowest day, we are conquerors, period, because we're in Jesus. Amen. 
Not only that, but Jesus being the answer is why Paul can say, no matter what I feel today, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, all over Scripture, we see what it means that Jesus is the answer, and Jesus being the answer, when the psalmist cries in, in Psalm 22, we can cry, God, you've answered. And your answer changes everything. And you need to understand that, church family. Our God is a God who answers. He has answered our ultimate problem of sin and death in Christ Jesus. And as we who follow Him cry out in specific situations where we feel we've hit rock bottom, understand God answers. May or may not be in the timing that we want it, may or may not be how we expect it, may or may not, but God answers. And because He answers, when it seems He's distant, we do cry out, though it's hard. We cry out of a faith that trusts Him even when we're confused. And when He answers, here's the response, we praise Him. Look back at the text. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, God heard. From you, God, comes my praise in the midst of the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. The afflicted will eat and they will be satisfied. Those who seek, the, seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart rejoice and live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of all the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. And the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive Posterity will serve God. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that God has done it. He has answered. And His answer, and another way that some older translations would finish off that last verse, His answer is, it is finished. You see, church family, the way that we respond in the, in the midst of God seeming different, the way that we respond, we cry out though it's hard, we trust though we're confused, and we praise because He answers. We praise Him. L look at what it says. We praise Him. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. We praise God. Jesus What's God answers to Jesus' death? If we think about the, the prophetic implications of the psalm, well, it was to resurrect Jesus. And what are some of the first words Jesus says after being resurrected? Go tell my brothers. 
What are the first words after God's answers here? I will praise him in the midst of the brethren. Church family, we, we have to praise God for how he answers us in the midst of each other. Amen. Who are we praising God to? To one another. We're praising God in the midst of each other. Listen, our only response to God, our only cries to God in the midst of each other should not be limited to just those of our problems. It should be a regular act of worship to publicly in the midst of each other as the body of Christ to praise God for His answer and answers. Why? Well, partially, one, He's worthy. Publicly, we should proclaim His worthiness. Well, guess what happens when we do that in the midst of each other? You've just come out of a season of hardship and you've watched God move and answer. You see how He has sustained you in Christ and you praise Him and give Him glory. And what you don't know is this person over here on the other side, they're in the midst of rock bottom. And when they hear you give a testimony praising God and glorifying Him for His answer, it encourages and spurs them on. Praise God, and in the midst of the assembly with each other, uh, Spurgeon wrote and said, we may learn from this resolution of our Lord that one of the most excellent methods of showing our thankfulness for His deliverance is to tell our brothers what the Lord has done for us. We mention our sorrows readily enough. Why are we so slow in declaring our deliverance? How many times has God, has there been a situation in our lives where we have cried out and cried out. We have struggled. We have fought through confusion by His grace to trust Him. And then God provides an answer. And how many times when that answer comes and relief comes, maybe that answer is, a, is the resolution to the situation. Maybe that answer, the situation doesn't resolve, but it's just this moment with the Lord one-on-one -on -one where, where peace floods our heart. How many times has He given an answer and then we move on to the next thing. How many times, do you realize Jesus, 10 lepers, now we all understand in the, in the Gospels in Jesus' day, if you had leprosy, the rest of your life was ruined. You were literally separated off from society. There was no hope of ever coming back in. Jesus heals 10 lampers, lepers, literally life-changing. Yet if you know the story, you know exactly how it goes. He heals 10 of them, life-changing. They can go back to society. They can be with their families. They can get... Only one comes back to say thank you. Only one comes back to praise the Lord to tell of what the Lord has done. Church family, could it be that in our quickness to move to the next thing, perhaps there is some spiritual entitlement that is revealed? I didn't really want God's answer. I just wanted to get out of feeling bad. Could it be that there is some allurement with moving forward. Church family, we have got to praise. And that's why I said, when I caught myself earlier this week realizing, gosh, this whole sermon is just gonna end up being about, about praise and that in a response were to praise and it'd be really tempting to move something else that seems really simple. Praise God. 
If it's so simple, why is it so easy and tempting to move past? I find all over in my life, there's times I have cried out, God has answered, and then man, I am gung-ho moving to the next thing. And then another moment of sorrow comes, and I, because I've totally forgotten back here to praise Him, and not just to praise Him and thank Him, but to do it corporately in the midst of my brothers and sisters. We praise Him amid His people. Passage says we praise God because we fear Him. Did you see that? You who fear the Lord, praise Him, command. This is the command. If you fear God, if you have an honor and a respect and a reverence and a love for God, a loving fear of God, the proper response is praise. It's to praise Him. And the more we praise Him, the irony is the greater our fear will grow. We praise the one we fear, that we revere. It says, stand in awe of Him. Do you realize? What is the primary posture of people who praise God all throughout Scripture? It's not standing, it's bowing. This, this phrase stands out much more to me after all the time we've spent in Revelation in the recent months because when you go to Revelation, you constantly see all these angelic beings bowing, 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 and certainly you see human beings bowing. But the only ones who can stand in, the, who can stand in awe before God are those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand in awe of Him. Be in amazement and wonder that God has answered. Why? Because he is not despised nor abandoned the affliction of the afflicted, nor is he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Here's the reality. We praise God, church family, because God does not actually hide himself from his children. There may be days his presence seems veiled. There may be moments emotionally I don't feel him, and it's okay. But he's not hidden as if somehow in those moments I can't get to him. Because he has said, if you are in Christ, I am with you always. When your emotions are high, when your emotions are low. When you see life's greatest joy and when you experience life's greatest sorrow. I am with you always. How is he with us always? Because God Almighty, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, seals and dwells in us forever. So yes, are there moments we don't feel Him? He seems distant, absolutely, but guess what? He is with me always because Christ in me is the hope of glory. And one day as, as there will come a moment, you will look back on the journey of your life and there will be times like the famous poem, Footprints in the Sand, where we do say, but God, there's one set of tracks here. And God will say, you're right, that's when I carried you and you were unaware. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. We praise Him because God does not truly hide Himself. But He does ask us to trust Him. The heart of trust of which is when things are unseen. We praise Him because He does not despise or abhor our affliction. Here is the reality. Why are we to cry out? even though it's hard, driven by a faith that trusts, even though this, this world can be confusing to live in? Why are we? Because God does not shut his ears off to the cries of those who are afflicted. God hears. 
You find yourself at a low point today or you find yourself at a low point tomorrow, cry out, why? Because he sees, he hears, and he will respond in his perfect time. Scripture's covered with people who cried out and cried. Do you realize the Israelites in Egypt, they had to cry out for a minimum of 80 years because God's answer to bring them out of Egypt was Moses, and Moses didn't go back to bring them out of Egypt till he was 80. We cry, and we cry out of faith because we trust Him. We praise Him. We praise Him because He does see and hear. We, we praise Him. And as we praise Him, it informs our obedience. Look, look what it says. From you comes my praise. Meaning, listen, we, we don't praise God because we come up with stuff to praise Him for. We praise God because He is who He is. And he's always who he is. And he does what he does. And not only that, but it's God who it, who it says, according to Psalm 40, that, that picks us up out of the merry bog. It's God who sets me back on solid ground. It's God who puts a new song of praise in my heart. What is God at work? God is at work moving and stirring us to praise him. Our praise for God doesn't even come from ourselves, but from him, for who he is and what he does. And not only that, but it informs our obedience. He says, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. I shall pay my vows. Listen, there is a connection between my praise and my praise of God and my loving obedience to God. It's not easy to obey someone you have no praise for. But oh, when when I praise Him for all that He's done. Oh, when I praise Him for what He is doing. Oh, when I praise Him for what He has promised to do. Oh, how that drives a a warm and a lovingness and obedience. Listen to how Paul wrote the the Thessalonians. Listen to the order of these things. And remember, when Paul writes the church in Thessalonica, they are being persecuted in great agony. There is fervor in their city to, to drive them out and to crush their faith. Paul writes and he says, rejoice always, command. Pray without ceasing, cry out without ceasing, command. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then after that he says, hold fast to what is good, abstain from, what, from every form of evil. Isn't it interesting that in his final charge to the church in Thessalonica, there is the command to rejoice and pray and thank and praise before the commands to do good and not evil? Maybe because there's a connection. Perhaps our obedience is weak because our praise is weak. We praise Him. Praise informs our obedience. It doesn't just inform our obedience, but we praise Him because He satisfies. He says the afflicted will be satisfied. I know it is hard. It goes back to to what we saw last week. We cry out and we trust. It's hard sometimes at 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 rock bottom to really believe the Lord will satisfy because this world gives so many things that especially on an emotional level will bring such instant gratification. But there is nothing in this world that can satisfy only Christ. We praise Him because He does satisfy. We praise Him to the ends of the earth. See, that 
Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. The families of the nations will worship before you. We praise Him to the ends of the earth. We have a gospel message that we are to take, that, that, that we have been given a mission to take to every nation, tongue and tribe. Every one of us are called. If you're in Christ, you're a missionary. That's part of being a Christian. And the gospel we pro- proclaim, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just a message where we check the boxes of some information. It's a, it's a message of life that our life is to be transformed by. And when we go and tell the the world of, of the gospel. We don't just tell them the message of the gospel, but, but when they say, well, how has this changed your life? We then praise our God for His answer of Jesus and how it has altered and changed our life. We praise, we praise our God. So let's go back to who do we praise God to? We praise God, we praise God in the midst of each other to encourage one another, to worship Him. We praise God in the midst of a lost world to give testimony to the reality of the gospel. But then there's one more group we praise the Lord to. It says this, it says that posterity will serve the Lord. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. We are to praise God specifically to the coming generation. Now, it's interesting when you, and I don't pay diehard attention. I'm, I'm aware I read some stuff, but I'm not some guru. When you look at different generations in our country today and, and their response to the Christian faith, one of the things that the youngest generation is crying out for across the board is they don't want to just hear information bullet points about Jesus. They want to hear the stories of how the Jesus who lines up with the facts of Scripture is living and alive and intervenes in people's lives. They are looking for a real, living, active Savior. Well, guess how does the next generation learn those stories about Jesus? When we tell them the stories of praise, Let me tell you, friend, let me tell you the time, let me be honest about it, that I hit rock bottom. Let me tell you about the days and nights of crying out even though it was hard. Let me tell you about how I fought by the grace of God to trust even though it was confusing at times. Oh, and let me tell you how I saw God intervene. Let me tell you how I saw God bring an answer. And maybe the answer was what I wanted and expected. Maybe what, let me show you, maybe it wasn't. But let me show you how God is good and how he answered, how he addressed this place of rock bottom. Let me praise God to you, coming generation. Church family, the reality is we live in a world where there are times we will feel like God is distant, where he sounds silent, where where it seems like he's unaware, disinterested. It's the reality of living in a world filled and covered and uh, been broken by darkness and weakness and sinfulness and pain and hardship. It's the reality of belonging to a Savior with whom we will share in the fellowship of His sufferings before His return. And oh, how church family, God has both answered and is out of His answer of Jesus, answers daily in our lives. 
So understand, church family, we've got to respond to where we cry out. We've got to respond to where we trust. And we've got to respond in praise. We praise in every circumstance according to verse uh, according to verse. 29, the prosperous will eat, uh, those who will be going to dust will bow down. We praise Him in the midst of the trial by the way that we cry out out of faith. Lord, it seems You're not here, yet I know You are holy and You are Father's trusted. We praise Him by trusting Him in the midst of the trial, and when He lifts us out of the merry bog, we praise Him for what He's done, and it is vital church family that we praise Him to each other to encourage and strengthen each other, and it is vital for the future life of this church and every other church of Jesus Christ. Every true church bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, it is vital if we're going to pass the faith to the coming generations that we can honestly praise God at His answer to them. Why? Because it says, church family, He has done it. It is finished. And He is coming back to bring that finishing in full. So today we cry out, we trust, and oh, may we not, like the nine other lepers, forget to praise. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy. You are worthy of our praise. Father, I, I, you know where each one of us are at. There are some of us in this room on cloud nine. There are some of us in this room at rock bottom. And there are some of us in this room in between. Father, may we be a people who understand that your answer, capital A, is Jesus and what that means and how that speaks into each and every situation we face in life. Because though we may feel abandoned, Lord, the reality is in Jesus, we will never experience any forsakenness from you. Lord, inside of your answer of Jesus, those of us who have a personal relationship with you in Jesus Christ, there are situations we face where there are specific answers, deliverance we're seeking, maybe from temptation or from trial, from persecution, from loneliness, despair. There are different things, Lord. Father, may we be a people who cry out and trust You because You are a God who does not hide Yourself nor ignores our cries, but You are a God who hears, who sees, and Lord, You answer. And Lord, if we've experienced Your answers... May we not so readily move past that we forget to praise You. Because You are worthy. And Lord, we need to hear, the world needs to hear, and the coming generations need to hear and know that You are the God who answers. Jesus, it's in Your name I pray. May You be pleased in our response to You today and this week.